Now, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of James. Our time together this morning will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's Word. Uh, We're so grateful to have extra copies of God's Word around, so if you did not come with a copy, just look underneath the seat in front of you. Feel free to take one of those home with you. Consider that a gift from us to you today. Uh, We're going to ask you to keep that open the whole time. Uh, The sermon will be not only much more enjoyable, but hopefully much more intelligible if you're able to follow along in God's Word. We're going to begin reading in just a few moments in James chapter 3, verse 13. But before we do and dive back into the book of James and into James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12 specifically, I just want to take a moment and reorient us to the book of James since we have not been in the book of James since December 18th of 2022. So if you have your Bible, before we look at our passage today, I want you to just flip with me to chapter 1, verse 26. Actually, we're going to look up just a a little before that, verse 19. And there you will see these words that James writes. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear. Underline that. The word hear. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive, underline that word, receive, with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers, underline that word, of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. At the very beginning of his letter, James told us to hear the word, to receive the word, and to do the word. But the natural question for all of us as we think of his admonition is, how will we know if we have actually heard? How will we know if we have actually received the word? How will we be able to discern if we have done the word? James knew that we would need help, so he gives us help. In verses 26 and 27, very famous verses in James 1, he says we will know when we have displayed the word by bridling our tongue, first, by caring for the vulnerable, second, and third, by keeping ourselves unstained from the world. He says this, If anyone thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Ever practical, James has a category for a type of religion, a form of religion, a practice of religion that is useless. But these displays of God's word, James tells us, they manifest practical religion. And they're foundational not only for understanding verses 19 through 25, but also the rest of the letter, because the rest of the letter is structured by these admonitions. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, focus on caring for the vulnerable, as James instructs us to not show partiality to the poor. And then he moves to chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And we're often so focused about James' relationship to Paul that we miss the fact that what he's doing is focusing our attention on keeping ourselves unstained from the world by being doers of the word because faith without works is dead. 
And then in a a longer section, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, all the way through the end of our text today, chapter 4, verse 12, James actually repeatedly focuses on bridling the tongue. Because as we'll see today, it threatens the unity of the church. It threatens the unity of the church, of these churches in the dispersion, of these churches that are scattered throughout the ancient world. And over and over again, throughout his letter, James is reinforcing one main point that all flows out of chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. The church is the true heir of Jesus' teaching. And that will become evident by her distinct ethic as she displays the word. The only way for the church to know that she's the true heir to Jesus' teaching is if she displays an ethic of Jesus' teaching, as she displays the word of God in her life. But as he has reiterated that main point over and over again, our study of James has revealed that the church had some challenges, didn't she? She was showing favoritism to the high and mighty, to the exclusion of the meek and lowly. There was hypocrisy, from people who were merely Christians by profession, but not in practice. Because it's so easy to say, I love God, but not do what God requires. That there's loose speech from the very people who bless their Lord and Father and praise all creatures of our God and King, but curse people who are made in the likeness and image of God. James knows that the unity of the church is threatened. So he tells us, Because as we saw last time, the church is listening to two different types of wisdom. One that is from below rather than one from above. And as we'll see this time, she's expressing two different types of friendship. One with the world rather than friendship with God. While acknowledging two different judges. So James writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus himself were here speaking to us today. Let's begin reading in chapter 3 verse 13. Because all of this section just kind of packs together. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealousy, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us now as we turn our attention to your word. We're thankful that we've been able to gather together to sing, to pray, to praise, to confess truth. But now, Father, as we turn our attention to your word, we ask that you would help us be transformed by it, that we would not be mere hearers of the word, that we would be doers of the word. God, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear truth from your word. Father, that we would behold beautiful things from your word. And Father, we ask that as we behold these things, if we are believers, we would be conformed to the image of Christ. And Father, we pray for those who might be here today and are not yet believers in Christ. God, we ask that as they hear, as they are pointed to your words, these truths, we ask that you would do the good work of redeeming grace and cause them to be born again. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church conflict, James says, is the result of of a divided heart, and a divided heart destroys people. But where does this division come from? Notice first, the root of conflict in the congregation. Look with me again in verses 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. A key step in discerning the root of conflict in the congregation James teaches us is to trace it to the source. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? James gives us the assessment. Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. You have a divided heart. You profess to live for another world, but you earnestly love this world. You profess to follow Christ, but you earnestly love to have things that are contrary to what Christ has desired for you. And as a result of that, you are all messed up. You do what you should not do. You say what you should not say. You go where you should not go. You think what you should not think. You want what you should not want Your passions are at war within you. To understand what James is saying, we actually have to deal with our own hearts because James knows the propensity of the heart is to look for some other person to blame. The excuse has to be somewhere outside of me. I can't be the problem. But James will have none of it. James tells us that we have to look to our hearts, hearts that are, James 4, 2 through 3 teach us, are first and foremost selfish. Notice how he describes the selfishness. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James says that when others have what we want and stand in the way of what we desire, that we will strive to remove their opposition by murder, by fighting, by quarreling. That when other people get in the way of what we think is rightfully ours, we will move them at all costs. Why? Pride? Thinking that we're better than others? We determine that what they have should be what we should have. That what they get to do should be what we get to do. That where they get to go should be where we get to go. A self-righteousness. A drawing attention to and even magnifying the failures of others. To justify their unworthiness and our personal deservedness. They don't deserve that. I do. Insecurity. Because we so desperately need what others have to feel whole and that God loves us. Self-pity. The perverse pleasure that we sometimes indulge in feeling sorry for ourselves as we interpret other people's blessings in their lives as a form of betrayal against us. A lack of love. And where love is deficient, murder and fighting and quarreling will be the norm even in the church, James tells us. Just think for a moment of the wide spectrum of love that you have for different people. There are some people in your life whom you love greatly, probably because they have blessed you in some way, whether by friendship or they're your family or by the ways that they have served you. You appreciate them, you respect them, you love them so much that no matter what they have, you instinctively believe the best about them and always know that there's a good explanation for it. But at the other end of the spectrum, there's another group of people that you love very little. Some of them are actually sitting in this room with you right now. They have disappointed you. They have disagreed with you. They've not done what you thought they should do or said what you thought they should say. They've hurt you or they've blocked some blessing from you in your life that you desired. So if you are like most people, you grab onto all of the critical reports like Velcro and you dismiss all of the favorable reports like Teflon and you are sure that they don't deserve anything that they have in their life ever. Friends, James tells us unless God does major heart surgery on us, these attitudes will continue to destroy us and our relationships in the congregation around us. But the good news is that God is ready to operate. So in a very skillful pastoral style, James draws his readers out with questions. Questions that, if we're allowed to respond, could surely have led to a list of individuals and situations that we believe were causing all of the conflict in our lives and in the community around us. And we know that. As soon as we say, who's the problem? Everybody in the room is thinking, oh, I know who's the problem. It's never me. This person's the problem, and this is what they did, and this is how they did it, and this is when they did it. James, like a skillful pastor and counselor, draws us out, but James says that we would be wrong to think about it that way. The quarrels in the community weren't caused by other people. James doesn't give us any room to point the finger. The quarrels in the community, the fighting, the backbiting, the murder in the community, is not because of the specific wrongs of other people and the things that they've done against us. Rather, James says, it is the invisible passions at war within us that are causing the problems. 
Your desires are the problem. My desires are the problem. Your covetousness is the problem. My covetousness is the problem. Your passions are the problem. My passions are the problem. James directs us to look inward into our very own hearts and ask, what wicked, self-focused desires are the actual cause of all of the conflict the community is actually experiencing? And if there is any doubt as to what he means by passions, or what passions James has in mind, the apostle removes all of the ambiguity by painting a picture of our covetous desires for others' belongings and their status and their relationships and their influence, their very life. Friends, I know in a room this size that many of us have thought what they have should be mine. And there's this somewhat acceptable Christian daydreaming that, uh, that goes around where we fancy what our life would be like if we had what other people had and how much better it would be and how much better we would steward it. Isn't that often what we want? Not just something else, but what someone else has, their life. What we have is never good enough. James knows that. He says it's unacceptable and that's the problem. So James gives a vivid description of covetousness similar to Jesus' language in the Sermon on the Mount. And like Jesus, James rebukes and he corrects these Christians for envying and fighting with each other instead of going to God in prayer because a Christian's attitude toward God should be that of a child to a loving father for provision. Once again, echoing Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be open for you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And yet James knows that even in cases in which we have asked God, we have not received because we have asked wrongly with corrupt intent to spend it on our own pleasures. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Brothers and sisters, James says it's not everyone else's fault that you don't have what you want. And God is not a vending machine. So as the Puritan learned a long time ago, he sometimes says no to our wrongful prayers. I thank thee that many of my prayers have been refused. I have asked amiss and do not have. I have prayed from lusts and have been rejected. I have longed for Egypt and have been given a wilderness. Go on with thy patient work, answering no to my wrongful prayers and fitting me to accept it. James knows that the problem is within us, that the desires are corrupt, that there's a longing and a lusting and a pining and a yearning that is willing even to kill. Now, as we read this about the Christian community, it's astonishing to us. And I don't think James is saying that First Baptist whatever was known for murdering all of its members, but I think what he's saying is that deep in the heart, what is happening in the believers is that they're actually killing one another with the way that they think the way that they envy, 
the way that they fight and quarrel, raging against one another, and in so doing, missing the entirety of what God has taught in the law, fulfilling the law and being doers of the law. So James tells us that the problem is not external, it's internal. That's, that's why there's corruption in the community. Church conflict, James says, is the result of a divided heart. And divided hearts destroy people. And how do we combat that division? Notice second, the fruit of humility in the congregation. Look with me at verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. James describes the divided hearts of these believers as unfaithfulness to God, an unfaithfulness that he says is akin to the unfaithfulness of a spouse. You adulterous people. Because God is depicted in the Old Testament as Israel's husband. Isaiah 54, 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. And in the New Testament, the church is described as the very bride of Christ. Revelation chapter 21, verse 9. Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. James uses this arresting language, and he sets before us the ultimate loyalty, faithfulness, and relational intimacy that God's people share with him. And heinous is the sin that violates that intimacy, James says. Verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What is the friendship of the world that James is describing? The type of quarreling, backbiting, infighting, murderous desires that he just laid out in verses 1 through 3. And in using the words friendship and enmity, James calls our attention to the fact that ultimate devotion can be to only one person, and nothing else. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Friendship with the world, James says, means that we are not friends with God. And friendship with the world, James tells us, is evident in the quarreling and fighting of God's people. When there is an evident lack of those who make peace, there is active rebellion against God. Against the God who, verse 5, is like a jealous husband. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? James does not cite a passage, but he actually summarizes an idea. And what he's trying to teach us is this. God will share his affection for us and our affection with him with no other. You cannot love God in money. You cannot love God and murder fellow church members in your heart. You cannot say that you love God and hate your brother. You cannot love God and covet your fellow Christian's spouse 
and health and house and life and wealth and education and opportunities and giftedness. You cannot love God and covet after those things. Thankfully, verse six, James tells us that God gives more grace. Not just grace, not sufficient grace, but more grace. More grace than just grace to save us. James is writing to the local church. Grace to mature us, grace to make us whole, grace to make us people of integrity. So much more grace that it actually leads James James, to call us to repent with an explosion of 10 imperatives in verses 7 through 10. Notice what he says. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. James' call, call to repent is balanced with a parallelism that is gracious on God's part. He tells us that God actually gives grace to humble people. That when we turn away from these things, the devil will flee from you. That when we draw near to God, God will draw near to us. That God will exalt us when we humble ourselves. He will do that when we humble ourselves, verse 10, before the Lord. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, what does this humility look like? Just look again at verses 7 through 9 and see how James rounds out this picture of what true humility looks like. True humility, submit yourself to the Lord. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands, what you do. Purify your hearts, what you want. Be wretched and mourn and weep be turned. True humility is manifest, James tells us, in our relationship with God over against the devil and friendship with the world. True humility is manifest in our repentance and deed and heart, James tells us. True humility is manifest in our response to sin and impurity in our lives. Sin and impurity that is present in and affecting the church. Friends, first of all, it is a lie to think that your sin only affects you. That is one of the first lies of the devil. No one else will know. No one else will be affected by this. Constantly, when we read the New Testament, what we see is that our sins personally affect the people around us. Our sin never happens in a vacuum. Our sin is constantly affecting other people. It's affecting family. It's affecting friends. It's affecting colleagues. It's affecting coworkers and brothers and sisters, members of Christ Church Westchester. It is affecting other people in the context of this local church. It is impacting the community around you. And just in case you're starting to listen to the sermon for somebody else, notice how James describes that this isn't simply somebody else theoretically, James is speaking to members of the church in particular that he describes as sinners who need to purify themselves because they are double-minded. James calls Christians, the church, to repentance because the offense of sin and its gravity and its destructive potential in their lives and in the lives of their family and friends in the context of the church is immensely great. It is so great that they should be grieved of their sin. They should mourn and weep and howl. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you about your sin and how you're dealing with it right now. 
Has your sin crushed your spirit? If not, James would say that your repentance is shallow. There is a time to weep, and there's a time to laugh, but it is never a time to laugh when we're dealing with our sin. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. The healthy and proper response to sin, James says, is sorrow and mourning because repentance that is mechanical and detached emotionally is not repentance. It's false. And God opposes it, James says. One of the things that I see as a pastor often, I see it as a parent as well, is that it is easy for people to repent or to profess repentance when there are consequences that are before them. Then all of a the sudden, they're like, I'm different. I'm no longer who I was. I'm changed. What James tells us that that's not repentance. A repentance that is just mechanical to try to get away from consequences. A, me- a repentance that is mechanical, a lot like children apologizing to one another, I'm sorry that you're a moron. That's not repentance. James tells us that repentance is emotional and it is deep and it is heartfelt. It breaks our lives. How would those who are closest to you describe your repentance? Members of this church. How would other members of this church describe your repentance? The reality is, is that how you often think of your repentance and how different you think that you are as a result of it is probably insufficient. Would they say that your repentance is shallow because you're quick to say you're sorry because you don't want to experience consequences, but you never really put in the work to change at all? James would say, what are you waiting for? James tells us that happiness follows true repentance. Verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humility leads to happiness because you will be happy when God exalts you. But the question that all of us have to ask right here as James is writing to us about this is how are we to cleanse ourselves? How do we purify ourselves? How do we draw near to God? The astonishing truth of the gospel is that we are unable to cleanse ourselves. We are unable to purify ourselves. We are unable to draw near to God apart from God's gracious invitation and his merciful cleansing. We read it earlier, but it often is so situated in the context of our service that we just move right through the confession of assurance and assurance that we fail to see that that is God once again reminding us of the gospel. Reminding us of the gospel that God is the one who cleanses us. We do not cleanse ourselves. That God is the one who purifies us. We do not purify ourselves. That God is the one who awakens us to draw near to him. We do not simply draw near to God because we want to try harder. That God is the one who has to actually invigorate our hearts and make them alive so that we would pursue after him wholeheartedly. That God is the one who makes us desirous to confess our sins because we actually believe the truth that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, the reason that we are slow because God has not yet moved. God has not yet moved because we are not quick to repent. We have to come to him in repentance and confess our sins and ask God to do the good work of grace in our hearts, to make them alive so that we follow Christ in repentance and faith for the first time and believers in this church to make them alive so that we might continue to follow down a path of repentance and faith continually in our lives. This message is not simply for the unbeliever. This message is for the believers in this church who are wreaking havoc on the church. Their desires are not only impacting themselves, but are impacting everyone around us. 
and around them. And the message is the same. Believer, if you're here, repent, turn to Christ, and ask God to do the good work of changing your desires. And unbeliever, if you are here, it is the same message. Ask God to, to do the good work of changing your desires. And the promise of the gospel is that he will. Friend, if you're here and you want to talk more about that, we would love to talk to you more about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll be standing back at that tunnel as we exit the service. Other pastors will be at different entrances today. We would love to open the Bible with you and tell you what it means to repent and to turn away and how you can be cleansed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church conflict, James says, is the result of a divided heart. A divided heart that destroys people. But how specifically is James concerned about these divisions manifesting themselves? Notice third, the root of critical judgments in the congregation. Look with me in verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Once again, James teaches us that a key step in breaking free of the habit of making critical judgments is actually to trace them all the way down to the source of the root. And to do this, James 4, 11 through 12, describes the most common source of critical judgments. When others stand in the way of what we want, we strive to remove their opposition by tearing them down verbally and diminishing their credibility and influence in any way that we can. Why? Once again, jealousy in the heart. Jealousy like we see in Genesis 37, 11, when Joseph's brothers were jealous of his relationship with God and they repeatedly interpreted all of his motives and actions in the worst possible way. Fellow members, is that how you're treating other believers in the context of the church? Always interpreting all of their motives in the worst possible way. Every text they send, reading through the lines. Every conversation you have, what do they really mean by that? Every time they walk away, I wonder what they think of me. You know who sits at the center of that story every time? You. And everybody is always viewed in their relationship to you. What did they provide? And what did they give? And how are they supporting you and your visions for greatness? Prejudice. Our preconceived and unfavorable opinions about other people because of their race or their gender or their status in life or the opportunities that have been given to them, and all the ways that we seek to validate our views and our beliefs and our actions against them negatively. Unforgiveness. Our very intent to look for the worst in other people. Not simply do we not presume the best, but we look for the worst because we do not forgive. And that helps us justify the way that we are living our life. And helps us justify all of our unrighteous behavior. Brothers and sisters, once again, unless God does major surgery, these attitudes will control our judgments and destroy relationships as we speak evil against one another. Speak evil against one another, not just verbally, but by the way that we play out all of the mental tapes in our heads. But the good news is that God continues to be ready to operate, James tells us. So he continues his conversation about a divided heart with teaching of an unbridled tongue in a section that many of us are tempted to think is separated from what James is writing in verses 1 through 10. He continues, and he helps us see that judgmental speech, the speech that he speaks of in verses 11 through 12, is an example of the type of quarreling and fighting that is happening in the context of the church. 
quarrels that James rebukes. So like Moses, he forbids speaking evil against one another, whether it be defamation or slander or gossip or lies or exaggeration. Leviticus 19 verse 6. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Brothers and sisters, James tells us that one of the marks of a healthy church is a church that's learned how to bridle its tongue and use its speech to edify. Let me ask you, is your speech characterized by gossip? Slander? Misrepresentation of other people? Private or public? Whether written in your journal or typed in an email? That type of speech, James tells us, causes fights and quarrels and destroys the church. And as he echoes Leviticus, he forces us to ask a very searching question in verse 12. But who are you to judge your neighbor? The obvious answer is no one. I am no one to judge my neighbor. And it helps us to see that rather than focusing all of our attention on ourselves, we focused all of our attention on our neighbor. Rather than focusing on our obedience to God's law, we have focused our attention on other people's obedience to God's law. James knows that we have nitpicked other people's obedience, jumped to conclusions about their actions. We've questioned their motives as if we are their judge. But verse 12, he tells us, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. Now this is a confusing passage. And so what I want to do is just kind of quickly say what I think James is doing here. He comes and he tells us how we regard the law. How do we regard the law when we are speaking evil against other people and judging other people? We're saying that the law is not good. Why are we saying that the law is not good? Because James has already told us in chapter 2 what the royal law should do. It tells us that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. Friend, you are not loving your neighbor as yourself when you are speaking ill and evil of your neighbor. You are not believing that the royal law is good when you are gossiping and slandering. You are not saying that God is right in what he has decreed when you are manipulating people with your words. You are not loving your neighbor as yourself. You are saying that the law is wrong and not good. And what are you saying about the lawgiver? The one who has given us the laws to obey. That he is wrong and that he is not good. And what are you saying about yourself? That I know what is best. That I know what is right. That I know how people should live that I know what people should do, that I know how people should act. So James asks, but who are you to judge your neighbor? No one. Friend, if you want to help us build a healthy church, rather than looking around the room and thinking of all the people that you need to fix, you need to look inward. And when you look around the room, rather than thinking of all the people that you need to fix, you need to look around the people, uh, room and see all the people that you can serve. All of the people that you can minister to. All of the people that you can pray for. All of the people that you can give of yourself for, from, so that they might have, even if that means that you do not have. All of the people that you might have the privilege to benefit with your life. To give at great cost to yourself, as our brother Jeff Moreau modeled for us, in his giving at great cost to himself, to another. Jeff and Oliver were not friends. Tammy and Jeff were not friends, at least in the sense that they were fellow church members, but they were not particularly close. 
But Jeff looked around the room, so to speak, and saw a need that he could meet, and he met it out of love and great cost for himself. Friends, if we're only looking around the room and seeing a bunch of problems that we need to fix and people that, who can or can't benefit us, then James tells us that there will be conflict in the church. Conflict in the church that is the result of a divided heart. Divided hearts that actually destroy us and everyone else around us. And friend, if you want to help us strengthen the church, seek to serve, but if you also want to help us evangelize the lost, help us build this type of church. The unbelieving world is looking in. And often what do they see? A group of people who are in constant conflict. A group of people who are uh, backbiting and nitpicking and needling one another to death. And the unbelieving world, when they look into the church and they see that, what do they say? I get enough of that everywhere else. Why would I wake up on Sundays to go to church? Friends, as your pastors, overall, we are so encouraged. But it is not uncommon for us to hear and to see people denigrate one another with their words. After they have blessed God, they curse people who are made in his image. James says these things ought not be so. Not only should these things not be so, James tells us as he continues to drive that main point home for us, all the way from chapter one, he says this is a useless religion. Do you want to have a practical Christianity? Do you want to have a faith that is real? Do you want to have something that does good not only for yourself but everyone else around you? James says that we are to be a people who are to use our speech, who are to live our lives for the benefit of others. And that will only happen when we have humbled ourselves and allowed the Lord to exalt us in his good timing. The astonishing thing in the Bible, though, is that exaltation doesn't always look the way that we would expect it to. That exaltation often looks the opposite in the Bible. Jesus is highly exalted in the Gospels when he's suffering most for the kingdom of God and he's pierced on a cross, suspended between heaven and earth. The exaltation of people in the context of the church isn't always at their own prominence, but it's seen behind the scenes and it's heard publicly and privately when those things are consistent and when they're serving for the benefit of other people. James tells us that conflict in the church is the result of a divided heart. And a divided heart destroys people because you cannot have the values of the world and be a friend of God. You cannot speak against another and say that you love your neighbor. You cannot say that you love the assembly and work against it only focused on yourself. Fellow members of Christ Church Westchester, let us labor together to be these type of people. Verse seven, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to humble ourselves today. Humble ourselves in repentance as we turn towards you afresh. Humble ourselves in relation to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, we pray that you would help us to humble ourselves so that we might build something together that lasts far beyond our life should you tarry and give it to us.
that we might help build the gospel up here in the context of this church for the advancement of your kingdom, the exaltation of your Christ, the conversion of the unconverted, the edification of people that you so love that you sent your son to die for. Father, I thank you for these men and women. Father, we ask today that you would help us to apply these truths, that you would write them on our hearts. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.